Well, what did you think about that? We indeed have much to celebrate, don't we, church? And I'm excited to do so this morning as we consider uh, a wonderful account in John's gospel. I do invite you to turn into your Bibles to John chapter 11. You'll find that on page 897 in the Pew Bible in front of you. And I would encourage you to have a copy of God's Word open in your lap while we uh, have our time in God's Word this morning. I think you'll find it far more easier to engage in the message if we're constantly referring back to Scripture, and you can note that. And so I do uh, invite you to turn to John 11. Uh, If you're not used to looking at the Bible, the large numbers are the chapter numbers, and the small numbers will be the verse number. And so we'll be in the chapter of John, chapter 11, and we'll begin this morning in verse 11. While you're finding your way to John, chapter uh, 11, I I did want to share another verse with you this morning. It's going to be on the screen here. It's also from, from John's Gospel, or not John's Gospel, John's writing, the book of Revelation. And I thought maybe uh, if you would it be okay if we could read this together. Can we do that? So let's do that. Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Does that excite you at all? I mean, I want you to understand something, that Jesus Christ is the living one. He died and now is alive forevermore. Do you believe that he holds the keys to death and Hades? You would like to celebrate that a little bit? Praise the Lord for that. That's okay. We can get happy about that. Please understand that this truth is the heart of of Christianity, that Christianity, unlike all the world's religion, is primarily the announcement of historical events, world-changing facts. Christianity is always good news to believe before it is ever good instruction to follow. Don Carson once said, nothing is more central to the Bible than Jesus' death and resurrection. The entire Bible pivots on one weekend in Jerusalem about 2,000 years ago. It all pivots on that. Now, not everybody who, who claims the name of Christ agrees with that statement. There has been a tendency within especially the Western church the last 150 years to demythologize the Bible. There's an attempt to that we need to make Christianity acceptable to the modern man. And, and we know, we're modern people. We realize, listen, people don't rise from the dead. You die and you stay there, right? And so there is a tendency, even within many who call themselves Christians, to reject the literal, bodily, historical resurrection of Jesus. They say, listen, we, 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 we reject the facts of Jesus, uh, facts of Easter, excuse me, but we still have... We still have the meaning of Easter, the principle of Easter, they will say. So many churches are celebrating not the facts of Easter today, but the principles of Easter. And they'll say things like, well, you know, the principle of Easter, after winter comes spring. And, you know, through trouble, there are new beginnings and, and hardship causes you to grow. And, you know, every cloud has a silver lining. Right? We, we, we believe in the principle, not necessarily the facts. And you see, there is an attempt to change Christianity to something that might be respectable 
to the modern man. I simply, maybe you might have that same mentality this morning. And the question I would have for you is, how would, how would you then account for the start of the Christian church? I mean, could you imagine some 2,000 years ago, amidst the Roman Empire, starting a religion and saying, okay, everyone, we have a new teaching. That with every cloud, there's a silver lining. Okay? We, listen, adversity comes, through adversity comes. Can you imagine going to a slave and a slave saying, Oh my, I mean, send me to the lions because, you know, through adversity comes growth, right? Every cloud has a, has a silver lining. I'm ready to give up everything I have for this. You know, sociologists say the hardest customs to change in a culture are religious customs. It takes centuries, not, not, not years, not, not decades, but centuries. And yet some, something happened 2,000 years ago in the middle of the Roman Empire overnight when Jews who had by divine edict worshipped on Saturday for thousands of years began to worship on a Sunday and radical monotheists began to worship a man as if he were God. It happened overnight. Overnight. There's no councils. There's no assembly of the great theological minds to work out this theology. Something happened in Jerusalem that transformed lives and people were willing to die for it and sacrifice everything for it. What, what happened? Well, just listen to what they said. Jesus came back from the dead. Just as he promised, right? They killed him. He came back to life. And I would suggest to you, there is absolutely no way to account for the immediate start of the Christian religion which invaded the Roman Empire within a handful of years without the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if, if, you, if you would reject that today, I would just humbly ask you to consider the evidence, just to think, to reason this out, that Christianity is not simply Jesus comes to give us practical advice or a good example. It is not the Easter principle that... That spring follows winter. Christianity is that Jesus Christ has conquered death for us. He came into this world and he has put his foot on death's neck for you and me. So I, I say to you, happy Easter. Right? He who was dead is alive now forevermore and he holds the keys to death and Hades. Right? And I, I want to, with you this morning, consider John chapter 11 and Jesus' power over death. If you're, you're hoping that was the sermon, I'm sorry to disappoint you. Um, that's just an appetizer, right? Um, we're, we're getting into the meat of the message here in John 11 as we see Jesus confront uh, death itself. We'll begin in verse 11. Hear now the word of God. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to waken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he had fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant he was taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, when Jesus came, he found Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out and met him, and Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, 
if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Yes, she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, Son of God who is coming into the world. Our Father, we pray that you would help us now as we come and consider your word, that you would speak truth into our hearts, and that we would leave this place living in light of the fact that our King and our Lord has indeed conquered death for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1836, a man named Daniel Draper, a missionary from England to Australia, left for that faraway land. He would spend the next 29 years in Australia. Over those 29 years, he would start 30 churches there. He returned home for the first time 29 years later, spent about six months in England, and then on January 5th, 1866, he set sail to Australia to continue his mission work. Five days into that voyage, winds began to grow severe. The ship was hit with a storm, and much of the ship's rigging was blown away. The ship continued to be buffeted by winds and waves and rocking violently. Eventually, they found themselves in the Atlantic Ocean in the middle of a hurricane where the captain made the difficult decision to turn the ship around and attempt to make it back to England. At 10.30 p.m. on that night, a mountain of water fell upon the main deck, completely filling the engine room. The men went to work to do all they could to repair but nature would show them no mercy. And finally, the captain would gather all the crew and the passengers and told them that they need to gather to pray, for the ship was in severe trouble. One historian describes the account this way, saying the darkness that night was an eerie forerunner of the deeper darkness that would soon engulf them. At midnight, Draper began a prayer meeting in the saloon. All the passengers and crew on duty gathered In between prayers, Draper exhorted people to come to Christ for salvation. Many brought their Bibles and read them with earnestness. Survivors later reported that mothers were weeping as they held their bewildered children and bid each other goodbye. At dawn, the captain reemerged to those who had gathered, and he reported that all hope was now lost. They were going to sink. A somber silence filled the room until Draper finally stood up and with tears falling from his eyes, he said in a clear, strong voice, the captain tells us there is no hope that we must all perish. But I tell you, there is hope. Hope for all. Although we must die and shall never again see land, we may all make the port of heaven. The survivors of that shipwreck report beginning that prayer meeting at midnight until the ship sank at 2 in the afternoon on January 11, 1866, taking with her 246 of the 273 down into the ocean. That during that time, Draper was ceaseless in prayers and admonitions and invitations. And his last words were, in a few moments we all must appear before our great judge. Let us prepare to meet him. 
One survivor said that as they left the ship, he heard people singing. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. They sang, while I draw this fleeting breath, when my eyes shall close in death, when I rise to worlds unknown and behold thee on thy throne, rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. I, I wonder how, how you would face such a death. I mean, can you just for a moment try to place yourself on that ship? There is, of course, no doubt that this is an awful and terrible way to die. And there would be much dread in that, wouldn't there? But would there be joy in your heart of what you would soon inherit? Would the the work of Christ enable you or maybe even cause you to praise Him and to place your faith in Him at such a dreadful time? Or would the tragedy cause you not to sing of God's greatness and grace, but to perhaps even question it? There was a similar tragedy happening in Jesus' day which brought up questions of God's love. It's told us in John chapter 11, verse 1. We see now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, uh, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. You notice that Lazarus had two sisters, all of whom were deeply and particularly loved by Jesus. Contemplative Mary and, and serving Martha and their younger brother Lazarus were special to him. We know from the Gospels that Jesus would often stay at their house It was a place where he could kind of be himself, kick his shoes off, if you will. A little bed and breakfast in Bethany. And Jesus delighted in being there and loved this family greatly. In fact, they even appealed to his love when they asked him to come help. And you see in verse 3, it says, uh, So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. You see the appeal. You love Lazarus. Come and help. Even John notes of Jesus' love in verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And not not only did John know it, the whole crowds know it. Note verse 36. So the Jews said, see how he loved him, right? He loved this man. And so it's very puzzling, therefore, isn't it? The question arises that Jesus, who is constantly healing other people, does not heal the one whom he loved. Instead, he lets him die. As you know, in verse 14, then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And so you have compounding the heartache of the, the sudden death and the, the premature death of this young man, the confusion of Jesus' absence. They, they, they sent for Jesus in the, during their desperate hour. You know that Mary and Martha must have scanned the horizon as Lazarus' breathing became more labored. Surely Christ would come. Surely He would get here in time. But He did not. He did not come in time. Death reached up and pulled Lazarus down into its icy grasp and Jesus was not there to stop it. This created great, amidst the sadness, confusion of the love of God in the midst of this tragedy. I mean, just listen to Martha in verse 21. She says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Or listen to Mary in verse 32, who echoes her sister. She says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Or even consider the crowds. Verse 37, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? Jesus is faced with these questions. 
amidst the heartbreak of an untimely death. And I want to consider with you this morning on this Easter Sunday how Jesus responds to death. John chapter 11, I think it gives us at least four ways in which Christ responds to death. And I hope and pray that this will be a great encouragement to you as we follow our Lord. First of all, consider that Jesus gives hope. In verse 17 we read, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Somehow, Martha gets word that Jesus is on the way and slips out unnoticed to the outskirts of the town. You could see her, perhaps, in your mind's eye, standing there alone, pale, weary, and disheartened with a village of Bethany and her back shimmering in the Palestinian heat and on the dusty road in front of her comes Jesus Christ with his entourage following him and when he reaches her Martha speaks from her heart as we've seen in verse 21 Lord if you had been here my brother would not have died you of course no that's not the first time this question has come into her heart you, you can imagine Mary and Martha must ask again and again, when will Jesus get here as they watch their brother die? It was, it was, it was on the heart of Martha when she went out to, to meet Jesus on the road. If you had only been here, why didn't you come? You ever feel that way? Where are you in my desperate hour? Where are you when my loved one died? Where are you when my marriage fell apart? Where are you when my parents divorced? Where are you when my child abandoned the faith with which he was raised? You see, Martha's just simply expressing what countless others have already to God, if you had only been there. And it's in the middle of this sadness that she hangs on to hope, you see, in verse 22. But even now, she says, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus responds to her saying, your brother will rise again, at which Martha says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. She has faith in this final resurrection. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. And Jesus, at this time, in the midst of her grief, gives her this staggering claim of an amazing hope, as you see in verse 25. He declares, I am the resurrection and the life. He says, Martha, you believe that one day there's this great and final resurrection that is coming. And you're right. But understand this. I'm the one who brings that day. You you await the resurrection. I am the resurrection. I am the life. I am the source of life. I give life to whoever I please. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he invites her and you into this faith in Him, saying in verse 25, whoever believes in Me, though he dies, yet he shall live. And I've, I've, if you believe in Me, you'll overcome death. He's saying to her, and since I'm going to rescue Lazarus and everyone who puts their faith in Me from death. And then He speaks to her in verse 26. He turns from what He will do for Lazarus to what He will do for Martha and says, and everyone who lives and believes in Me shall never die. Now, what does he mean by that? He says, if you put your faith in him, believers will never die. Of course he doesn't mean that. What he, what he says is that if you believe in me, you'll begin to experience, experience a new life. 
If you, if you believe and live in me, that life, that, that resurrected life, that, that born again life, that abundant life, that eternal life that I've come to give will never be taken from you. Even death won't take it from you. And so, yes, I'm going to rescue Lazarus' body and soul from death. And if you believe in me, I'll put my spirit in you and give you life that will never leave you. He comes and he nourishes Martha's wounded soul with an unimaginable hope. He says, Martha, I love you. And I hate death. And I'm going to prove both are true. And then he has this incredible question. Then in verse 26, see what he says? Do you believe this? In the midst of tragedy, in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of hardship, when, when the wind won't relent and the ship is sinking and Christ does not come in saving the day, will you still hold on to hope? My brothers and sisters in Christ, will you take the lens of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and His promise, and will you look at all your troubles in your life through the lens of this great promise? I am the resurrection and the life. Right? Will you receive the life that He's even offered you? We don't wait until we die to get this life. It comes into us now. The Apostle Paul tells us over and over again that we are to live in, in the power and the Spirit of the Lord. He says in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. Yet the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. Paul says, I'm a new man because of Christ. We ought to be living that resurrected life. Have you been changed, Christian? You know the best way to celebrate Easter? Let me give you some help for this afternoon. Right? Don't go smell a lily. Okay? Don't eat some nasty marshmallow chick. Okay? Go kill some besetting sin in your life. Turn on it. In the power of Christ's death and resurrection, you begin to take one further step into true life and real life and victorious life, the life in which Christ would give you even now. It's a life which a man named Tokiki Ishii learned after two women came to his prison cell to speak to him of Jesus. He was a Japanese man, notorious murderer, awaiting his execution, his right and just execution. And as these women came to talk to him about Jesus, all he did was glare at him like they like it was some savage animal. They didn't speak a word. And in desperation, they just got up and left, but they left a Bible behind. And Ishii had nothing to do, so he picked up the Bible and he read and he kept reading and he couldn't put it down. And he got to the Gospels and read more. And he finally came to Calvary and he read the words of Jesus Christ when he says from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And Tokiki Ishii would later recall before he was executed, I stopped. I was stabbed to the heart as if pierced by a five-inch nail. Shall I call it the love of Christ? Shall I call it His compassion? I don't know what to call it. I only know that I believed and the hardness of my heart was changed. There was new birth in that prison cell and others began to notice. The jailer, when he brought him to the scaffold to be hung, said he, he, the, his uh, biographer said he found him, not the hardened, surly brute he had expected, but a smiling, radiant man, for the murderer had been born again. Literally, Christ brought Tokiki Ishii to life. I tell you, no matter what trouble you find yourself in today or what prison you might inhabit, Jesus tells you, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. 
He offers His hope. But that's not all He does. He comes and, as you notice quickly, He gives compassion. He expresses compassion as we see in, in verse 28. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and He's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to Him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met Him. When the Jews who were with her in the house uh, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was, she saw Him. She fell on His feet, saying to Him, Lord, if You had been here, my brother would not have died. It's the same words that Martha gave. right? The same grief, the same question. Mary comes here and collapses at Jesus' feet and sobs, Lord, why weren't You here? Why didn't You come? And you notice, by the way, to the same question, the same grief, Jesus' response is radically different. Isn't this amazing? Look in verse how Jesus responds to her. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. He, and he said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, you know this, right? Jesus wept. Right, with Martha, he preaches. I'm the resurrection and the life, Martha. It's never too late. He comes and meets her sorrow and calls for her to hope. With Mary, there's no sermon. Right? He doesn't even say a thing. He just enters into her sorrow. With Martha, he claims to be God. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the source of life. With Mary, he shows himself to be a man. He is showing himself to be the God man, a, a, a real man weeping as his love pulls him into her sorrow. He feels there the horror of death and grieves over the loss of this loved one. He expresses compassion in our times of trouble. And His compassion is nice and I think it's comforting. But what if all Jesus did would, was go to the tomb and, and weep there like the rest and then just walk away? Or we might appreciate that. We might love Him for it. But can we trust Him when we face death because of it? Can we trust our eternity to Him? Well, friends, He... He did not walk away. He had work to do. In fact, grief is not the only emotion he felt. As you consider, thirdly, Jesus demonstrates power at the face of death. Look back in verse 33. It says, Jesus, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, notice he said, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Look in verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. That phrase, deeply move, is not a word of compassion. It's always a rebuke or a warning. It literally means to, to admonish sternly. And so Jesus, in other words, Jesus walking up the tomb, not simply with overwhelming grief. His, his eyes may be filled with tears, but his heart is filled with rage at death. B.B. Warfield said, Jesus advances the tomb, not weak and sniveling, but as a champion preparing for conflict. John uncovers the heart of Jesus as he wins our salvation, not in cold unconcern, but in fiery wrath against our enemy. He comes to do battle against death with anger in his heart. Now, we don't deal with death this way. Right? You know how we deal with death? There's really two ways, it seems, that us Westerners like to deal with death. One, we deny it. We, we just, we don't talk about it. We pretend it's not there, right? Uh, and, and someone dies. We, we won't even, we don't even say that. We don't we'll never say someone dies. It's almost obscene. We say they passed away or, or they went on, right? We don't use the word 
death anymore. We go to the funerals. We go to the graveside. We no longer put the bodies in the ground, right? We, everybody leaves. We don't have to deal with that and wrestle with death in that way. We wait till everybody leaves and then the professionals do that, right? We, we're, well, someone said we're like prisoners in a jail and we have all agreed not to talk about it, right? And we're just going to pretend we're not in jail. We'll pretend that death is not there. I don't know how many times I've been to a hospital when someone is dying and we all know they're dying. The family comes out of the room and meets me and says, okay, well, before you go in there, please don't tell them they're about to die. And it, I tell you, it breaks my heart because I want to tell them. I want to wrestle with that. I want to give them an opportunity to prepare for that. We, we want to deny death. Right? We pretend it's not there. And if we don't deny it, we sentimentalize it. And you've heard this, and death is natural, and it's peaceful, and it's just the final stage of life, and it's the big circle of life, and we, you know, fertilize the earth, and the deer eat us, and isn't that nice and beautiful, right? 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 That's what we say. And we all know in our heart it's a lie. We know death is not a friend. I've never met a person in the presence of death and says, oh, there you are, friend. Where have you been? Jesus doesn't deal with death in any of these ways. The Bible says death is our enemy. Jesus walks to the tomb and he doesn't say, oh, good to see you, friend. He's in the presence of death and he sees a miserable enemy and he is filled with both sorrow and anger. And I want you to understand, Christians, that, that, that we have hope in life after death, but it doesn't mean that we make friends with death. It doesn't mean we don't feel the outrage at death. And it doesn't mean we don't fight against it when we, when we serve with our hands and pray with our hearts and witness to Christ with our mouths. We are waging a holy war against death under the banner of Christ. And so Christ comes and he's going to do battle with death. It's Jesus versus death. And he has, of course, we've seen already strong emotion and encouraging words. But does he have the power to back them up? Note verse 39. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Drop down to verse 43. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out. Jesus Christ, please understand, Jesus Christ commands the dead and the dead obey. He commanded Lazarus to rise from the dead and Lazarus got up and began to live again because he is the resurrection and the life. He holds the keys to death and Hades. And Christian, one day you understand that you too will rise from the dead. You, one day you will live in the kingdom of God. And Lazarus is just a little preview of your resurrection. But John 11 is just a little window into eternal glory. And we now, as we see, worship one who, who has power even over death. He holds the keys to death. And the reason he holds the keys to death, we know, is because he himself died and is now alive forevermore. Consider, fourth and last, Jesus offers love. Jesus offers love. So he brings Lazarus from the dead and amongst these masses of weeping mourners, this miracle did not go unnoticed, as you see in verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. The Pharisees will begin to deliberate 
what this means, what action that they must do. You can consider that this afternoon if you like. But notice their conclusion, verse 53. So from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. This miracle is the turning point in Jesus' life. This miracle is too visible. It's too powerful. This miracle sealed Jesus' fate. He's gone too far. He must die. And please understand, Jesus knew it before He did it. In fact, everyone knew it. They saw it coming. Look back in verse 7. When, when Jesus says, okay, I'm going to go up to Judea. No, verse 8, excuse me. Rabbi, the Jews just now seeking to, are seeking to stone you. Are you going there again? Right? They, they know that, that they're, they're out to get him. Verse 16, Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Right? They understand where they're walking into as they approach this town, that there are enemies there. And Jesus knew what he was doing. He, listen, he knew if he raises Lazarus from the dead in this way, that Jesus himself will have to die. He will be killed. Right? In, in other words, what, what, what we see when, when Jesus says, Lazarus, come out, he's signing his own death warrant. He, he raises Lazarus from the dead, not simply to show us that he's come to fight death for us. He, he does it to show he's come to receive death for us. Tim Keller says the only way to stop our funeral is to cause his own. That's exactly what he's doing here. Right? The, the, he, he knows that because he's doing this, he must die. And, and, and everyone else looks at him and says, wow, look at him weep. And, and he must really love Lazarus. I tell you that you look at, at his love not because simply because of his tears, but because when he says, Lazarus, come out, he is also saying, I am going in. That's where I'm headed. You know, when, when God called Abraham to sacrifice his son, his only son, he says, he says to Abraham, now I know you love me, for you have not spared your son, your only son. Can we not now say that to God our Father? Now I know you love me, because you have not spared your son, your only son. He goes in and shows us his love through death, but he doesn't stay dead as we have celebrated today. He shows us his might when he rises from the dead. He who calls people from the dead, he brings them out from the grave. He who gives them eternal life does so because he first has died and is now alive forevermore. And you and I can have confidence and hope in the face of death and any tragedy that comes on us because Christ has risen from the dead. He is indeed the resurrection and the life. My question for you, my Christian brothers and sisters, is do you live in light of this truth? Do you live in light of the truth that Christ is the resurrection and the dead? For instance, when fear paralyzes you, you need to remember His death and resurrection. You know that that verse we saw in Revelation 1? The, the beginning of verse 17, John says, When I saw him, I fell on his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. Christian, fear not. Your God rules the universe. Fear not, Jesus says. I am alive forevermore. Why would we fear? What do we have to fear? If God is for you, and he has all power and authority, and you are on his side, what do we have to fear? Too many of us live in fear. Fear what will happen, fear how it will all work out, fear what they will think of us if we have to speak out and tell them of the love of Christ. I tell you to dwell on the resurrection of Jesus, consider his love and power, and fear not. 
Happy Easter. Your Lord has the keys to death and Hades, and He is your God. And I tell you, on the authority of the Word of God, you have nothing to fear. Consider His resurrection. Not only when fear paralyzes you, but consider His resurrection when hardship troubles you. Consider the joy of the resurrection so that you can bear the crosses that He places on your back. And I don't in any way want to minimize the suffering that some of you walked into this room carrying today. Jesus too wept, but He also had joy in His heart. In fact, you look at the early Christians and what? They're full of, their lives are full of trouble and what? Full of joy. Are they better Christians than us? I don't think so. I just think they understood the resurrection of Christ. It was the lens in which they looked at their life, that they are beat down and pressed and imprisoned and robbed, and they, they will say because of the resurrection, okay, we've already won. Christ is the lie. And so when you face trouble, you need to reach into the hope found in His resurrection. Don't just believe it in your mind, but experience it in your life that you and I need to understand. We do not live in the land of the living, headed for the land of the dying. Brothers and sisters, we live in the land of the dying, and we are going to the land of the living. And we're going to have trouble in this life. But I tell you this morning, happy Easter. You can endure anything with joy through the resurrection of our risen Lord. And so when fear paralyzes you, Think of His resurrection. When trouble comes upon you, consider His resurrection. When sin condemns you, consider His resurrection. The Bible says in Romans 4 and verse 25 that He was raised for our justification. So think of this. The cross is is God's payment for your sin. The resurrection is proof of payment. It's your receipt. A month or so ago, I, I preached a sermon uh, on forgiveness, and we consider that Christ tells us to forgive seven times a day. In other words, there's no end to our forgiveness. And some of you came up to me afterwards and said, okay, I don't have a problem forgiving others, but you know what I have a problem with? I have a problem forgiving myself. I, I can't let go of myself. And my counsel to you when sin accuses you is to consider the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Listen, when you go and buy, you ever buy something and then you walk out the store and the, the, the alarm starts going off, right? And the lights are flashing and security descends upon you, and right? And they want to know what you stole, right? Well, you're a thief. What do you have? What do you do? You reach into your pocket and you shove it in their face and say, trouble me not, right? I have paid for everything. I owe you nothing, Right? The resurrection is your receipt. And so when sin comes and accuses you and whispers in your ear, I can't believe you did that. What do you mean you did that? I mean, how could you be here? How can you take the Lord's Supper? How can you worship Him in light of what you have done? You know what? Well, we're so passive. And we think, oh, I know. I'm the worst. I'm terrible. What, what I'm thinking? No, my friends, you, you believe the resurrection. You grab a hold of it and say, my sin has been paid for. Trouble me not. The resurrection is the proof. Well, may the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them and thousand more. Jesus knoweth none. Happy Easter. Your sins, all of them, my brothers and sisters in Christ are forgiven by God. Lastly, and let me just say, I know we have to go, but when death beckons you, consider the resurrection. When your ship is sinking and death is coming, 
You need to go and find a friend in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And even when you're healthy, is not death in the background? I mean, doesn't it color everything? I mean, could you imagine if I came up to you and said, listen, I got some bad news. Um, I'm going to kill you today. But I'm a reasonable man. And I don't want to be too cold and, and hostile about this. So what, what do you like to do? And, and you say, well, you know, I like to go for a walk or, or, or I like to watch baseball or, or whatever. And I say, okay, listen, how about this? Why don't you turn on the baseball game? You can watch the game, have a little fun, and then I'll kill you. Okay? Now, you would probably say something like, well, here's the problem with that idea. The, the, the fact that you're going to kill me tonight makes watching baseball not very enjoyable this afternoon, right? And i tell you, but isn't that the situation we're all in? Well, we may not die today. I don't know. We may. In five years, 50 short years, it's coming for all of us, right? We're all going to die. Death colors life. And yet we, Paul comes, and when you read 1 Corinthians 15, and Paul taunts death. <laughs> he says, hey, death, death, where's your sting? Hey, grave, where's your victory? He's taunting death. It's his home run trot against death, right? And, 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 and he, he's, he's taunt, how can anyone taunt death? Death is undefeated. Death is, you know, five billion and zero. It, death is never lost. And death came Jesus and death reached up and it grabbed hold of Jesus and it looked like another victory. And Jesus instead threw it on its back and put his foot on its neck and defeated his enemy for death. It was not possible for death to hold him. And so listen, happy Easter. Death has lost. It is defeated in Christ and all... That's right. Praise God. Listen. All death can do to you now is make you better. You, you, you could say to death, the lower you take me, the higher you raise me. Come on, death. Bring it on. There is nothing you can do to me because my Lord holds the keys to death. Amen. Do you believe that? You know, Jesus came to Martha and said, listen, Martha, I'm I'm the resurrection and life, and whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet he's going to live, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And he says to her, do you, Martha? Martha, do you believe that? He doesn't say, Martha, you know, does that make you feel better? Right? He doesn't say, Martha, can't you see the silver lining here? Right? Something good's going to come out of this. No, he says, Martha, do you believe I am who I say I am? She responds in verse 27, Yes, Lord. I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into this world. I pray that you would believe that today. Every single person in this room, maybe you came in here not believing it, that God by His Spirit would take a hold of your heart and show you His grace that would cover your sin. And that you would echo Martha's cry of 2,000 years ago today in faith, saying, yes, I believe that Jesus is the Christ who has died for me, who rose for me, and I submit my life to Him. If you would believe that, confess that to Him, I tell you, based upon the authority of the Word of God, that you, through Christ, shall live forever in the kingdom of God. Our Father, we are so thankful this morning that we may celebrate today the great victory over death 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. Help it not to be simply a reality we consider once a year, but the truth with which we look at all of life, that we might indeed live the life you call us to live. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.